Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Michael Gerhardt to our Lincoln Log podcast. Michael is the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law and scholar in residence at the National Constitution Center. His rap sheet of accomplishments is incredibly long and impressive, but given recent current events, I should highlight that he is a renowned impeachment expert. He was the only joint witness in the Clinton impeachment proceedings in the House, speaking behind closed doors for the entire House of Representatives about the history of impeachment in 1998, serving as special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee for seven of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices, and as one of four constitutional scholars called by the House Judiciary Committee during President Trump's impeachment proceedings. In 2015, he became the first legal scholar to be asked by the Library of Congress to serve as its principal advisor in revising the official United States Constitution annotated. Michael is the author of seven books, um, and his latest is Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader, an examination of how Abraham Lincoln mastered the art of leadership and how five men mentored an obscure lawyer with no executive experience to become one of, the great, one of America's greatest presidents. Michael, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Now, in 1849, when Abraham Lincoln returned to Springfield, Illinois, after two seemingly uninspiring years in the U.S. House of Representatives, his political career appeared all but finished. His sense of failure was so great that a lot of friends worried about his mental health. But within a decade, Lincoln reentered politics, became a leader of the Republican Party, won the 1860 presidential election, and kept America together during its most perilous period. To what degree do you believe mentors, and, and these five mentors in particular that you highlight, account for that turnaround? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I'll try and give you a short answer. <laughs> um, so uh, to begin with, let's give Lincoln a lot of credit, and people often do, um, and, and deservedly so. So I don't want to diminish um, the understanding of Abraham Lincoln as a very unique and special um, leader, ultimately one of America's greatest presidents, and somebody who is, as many others have said, um, he was self-educated. So that takes a lot of discipline, uh, not just to teach yourself one thing, but to be willing to be educated throughout your entire life. And so that was one of, one of the real distinctive attributes of Abraham Lincoln. So come 1849, as you just said, um, Lincoln's returning home from Congress. He had one, he had a single term in the House, not particularly distinctive term. And he comes home basically, uh, as some might think, a failure. He's not able to extend his time in the House. And so, and, and he's really not entirely confident where his future is going to lead, but he still keeps trying. So that's a very critical thing. He's never going to give up. Uh, that just was not in Abraham Lincoln's nature. So over the next 10 years, what Lincoln basically does is he goes back to doing the same thing he'd been doing for much of his life. He looked to a several people 
for inspiration, for guidance, for giving him some ideas and sometimes the rhetoric to map um, a, a future path. And one of them was uh, Henry Clay, perhaps the best known of uh, Lincoln's mentors. Lincoln called him a mentor in his final eulogy for Clay. Clay was a great orator, uh, was a great statesman, was a great legislator, uh, somebody who really put compromise at a very high level of priority. So Lincoln is learning from Clay's ability to adapt and to compromise. So Lincoln's uh, thinking, among other things, I, I should be open to that. He is going to be open to it. Uh, as um, Civil War approaches, it's hard for somebody to be in the middle, but that's exactly where Lincoln is. He's not at either extreme. So he's able to kind of bridge the differences between these gaps, much like Clay had done throughout his career. Lincoln's also taking a page from Andrew Jackson, another person I call his mentor. Uh, Lincoln certainly opposed Jackson's politics, mm -hmm. politics of states' rights, and focusing on the common man. Instead, Lincoln preferred Clay's vision of the self-made man, sort of a viable economic agent. That's the idea that uh, Lincoln really liked, but he liked Jackson's toughness, particularly in opposition to secession. Right. So Lincoln's gonna follow that. And then Zachary Taylor is one of the two most famous Kentuckians of Lincoln's lifetime, the other being Clay. Taylor's gonna be an innovative leader and general, and the other two are lawyer friends and mentors that we could talk about in more detail. Sure, sure. And I guess it'd be helpful for our listeners to go ahead and just list and identify the five mentors. And you could almost call them influences, really, in a sense as well. But uh, President Andrew Jackson, uh, who you just mentioned, Whig Party leader Henry Clay, and President Zachary Taylor, you mentioned, but then also Illinois lawyers and politicians, John Todd Stewart, who was related to Lincoln by marriage, and Orville Browning. Um, if we could touch a little bit more about Andrew Jackson, you mentioned him. He's when I saw this list initially stuck out to me like a sore thumb because Lincoln was a Whig. You know, as you noted, he didn't align with Jackson's political ideology. But you note that Jackson nonetheless opposed secession, uh, notably when South Carolina threatened to secede. If they were forced to pay tariffs, Jackson said that, quote, disunion by armed forces treason, sort of the union now and forever. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more? I mean, it really was that secession tough guy in the face of treason, really, um, that I think you, that appealed to him. Yes. And, and we so to, one thing that's going to be important is let's try and put ourselves in Lincoln's position. It's so easy to kind of think about what Lincoln becomes uh, and looking back at his career. But if you're, if you're in the position Lincoln is in, uh, let's say in the late 1850s, uh, there's only one president who ever took a really strong stand against secession. It was Andrew Jackson. If there was any other president that did that, it was Zachary Taylor, but didn't quite get the chance that Jackson did. Mm -hmm. But as you noted, J Jackson uh, came into office as somebody who was a proponent of states' rights, but he immediately ran into conflict with his own vice president, John Calhoun, who had a more extreme view of states' rights, a view that not only included protection of slavery, but a view that states could dictate to the federal government what to do. And states could choose not to follow federal policy. Well, Jackson didn't like that. That did not sit well with Jackson's idea of a union. And particularly when South Carolina refused to follow the federal law, that uh, the, the tariff you mentioned, um, Jackson issued a formal proclamation. And the proclamation is the only presidential document we really have opposing secession until Lincoln's election. And by the way, one of the first documents Lincoln asks to see after he wins the election is Jackson's proclamation. He's going to use it 
as one of the four documents he consults to write his first inaugural. He's got Jackson's portrait in the presidential office, um, something he's gonna point out to his political advantage, but also as an inspiration to himself to be tough. Something else to keep in mind about Jackson is that Lincoln grew up among Jacksonian Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and this allowed Lincoln not just to uh, understand them, to be friends with them. Mm -hmm. And later when he's president, he's gonna have to rely on Jacksonian Democrats as a critical part of his base. So he's gonna appoint Jacksonian Democrats um, who have later become Republicans, and he's gonna rely on them. And his understanding, and let's say reverence for Jackson, in spite of their political differences, is gonna be a great bridge between Lincoln and these other people. Yeah, much to the consternation of some, uh, President Trump had Andrew Jackson's uh, yes. portrait in the Oval Office as well. Uh, now, for many Lincoln aficionados, your inclusion of, of Henry Clay, who we talked about and touched upon, will come as no surprise. A Kentuckian, um, a com great compromiser, Speaker of the House, member of the Senate, served in the sec as Secretary of State and was a three-time presidential candidate. Um, Lincoln campaigned for, for Clay to the extent he was able. Um, you write that Lincoln's um, recognition, he, he really looked up to, to Clay's fortitude, uh, which helped him again and again and again, and that in the compromise, what other attributes of, of Clay really appealed to Lincoln that allowed him to mentor or influence him? Well, I think there are a number, and you point to one that's worth emphasizing. Uh, Clay and Jackson didn't have a lot in common. Um, they were political foes, but neither one ever quit. That was really a, a very extremely important defining quality of them. And so I think if Lincoln were looking around at, at leaders, he's going to settle very quickly on Jackson and Clay as two people who would never say uh, no, mm -hmm. who wouldn't accept defeat, who would keep moving forward. Um, so that fortitude, that resilience is something Lincoln will try and learn from and, and, and emulate. Um, a second quality, of course, is rhetoric. Clay was thought to be one of the great orders of the 19th century. Um, he and perhaps Daniel Webster would uh, fight for that title. Um, and, and because Lincoln liked Clay's politics better, he's going to, early on in his career, memorize uh, Clay's speeches, repeat them. He's gonna pay a lot of attention to the rhetoric of Clay. Um, and Lincoln will, uh, at first, early in his career, just basically copy it, but he's going, going to eventually not only understand it, he's going to better it. He's gonna take right. that rhetoric and match its elo eloquence, but he's gonna ultimately as president, learn how to be uh, more brief, more concise than Clay. Clay would give speeches for days. Lincoln would not do that either in Congress or as president. He understood people had short attention spans. So he ultimately becomes a master at the really excellent short speech. The Gettysburg Address is probably the best illustration of that, if not the second inaugural. Short, but extremely memorable. Right. That makes total sense then. And I guess the last of the five that are national political figures that you, you include here in your book is Zachary Taylor, served as president from 1849 until his death in 1850. Um, I, I know Whig leaders like Abraham Lincoln were eager to support a war hero who could potentially replicate the success of the party's only other successful presidential candidate, which was uh, William Henry Harrison, a Hoosier. Uh, beyond Taylor's electability, what did uh, Lincoln find admirable about Taylor? Well, Taylor was a winner. That was, a, that was another thing that had to be, um, that uh, Lincoln would rec recognize. And again, recognizing that Taylor was from Kentucky. So right, if a young Kentuckian is looking for people on the national stage to emulate or to 
follow. The two most prominent are Clay and Taylor. Uh, Taylor was not a speaker like Clay. He was blunt. Um, and that may have been something Lincoln ultimately liked was the fact that he could be sort of blunt and direct to the point. Mm -hmm. um, he was, um, he had a lot of ingenuity. Lincoln liked that. Taylor could adapt to circumstances and be able to snatch uh, victory from the uh, jaws of defeat more than once. And Lincoln would therefore be somebody who could adapt extremely well. In fact, it was very hard for people sometimes to figure out where Lincoln stood, which is exactly what Taylor's problem was. But Taylor benefited from that just as Lincoln would later benefit from it. People of different political stripes would think Taylor was on their side and people of different political stripes would think Lincoln was on their side. Mm -hmm. This was a studied kind of ambivalence or ambiguity that Lincoln would uh, manifest to his own political advantage. And ultimately when he chooses a winning general, finally, the one person he picks, Ulysses Grant, models himself on Taylor. Grant served under Taylor and Grant basically dressed like Taylor. He ran the army like Taylor. Mm -hmm. He would issue orders like Taylor and all of that appealed to Lincoln. And ultimately it seemed to be a good choice as uh, Grant was the ultimately successful final general in the civil war. Right, that's, that's a great insight. I guess we could just take a real quick aside here um, since we're talking about national mentors and, and Lincoln's view of, of, of leadership. A common theme on this podcast is Lincoln's view of the constitution mm -hmm. in part because I, it's been so important to shaping my own approach to the law as you know, Lincoln fundamentally reoriented our view of the Declaration and the Constitution, how they work together. Um, Lincoln, in my mind, masterfully recast the Declaration as an, as an inspiration. Mm -hmm. And the constitutional laws might be fixed at any given time. But for Lincoln, the Declaration was the beacon and the aspiration of, of, that we should strive to achieve. And I think the great um, Harry Jaffa really helped illuminate that, at least for me personally, and some of his scholarship. But mm -hmm. what do you think helped shape helped shape Lincoln's view of the interplay between the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Were there any mentors or, or texts that really stood out to him in your mind? Well, there him? were. Um, and of course, one of the initial um, inspirations is the, is the person who wrote the Declaration of Independence is Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln learns about Jefferson when he's a boy. Uh, and he really is captivated by the language of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so it's an ideal or declaration that Lincoln has in his mind from the earliest age. Um, and then Clay, um, who also claims to be a, a follower of Thomas Jefferson, puts forward the idea that the declaration really sets forth what you just described. It sets forth the ideals or aspirations that the constitution then seeks to implement or achieve. And Lincoln loves that idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and so it's an idea he champions for decades. And later as his president, he's able, unlike Clay, to finally sort of finish the task of cementing the Declaration of Independence with the Constitution. This great promise of all people being created equal is a really great inspiration for Lincoln. And I think as he looks at the, at the dilemmas of his time, inequality was, of course, perhaps the greatest, economic, racial, um, even the inequality between men and women. And so if there was an American document that addressed that, it was not initially the Constitution, it was the Declaration. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln talks about that, for example, on the steps of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, not long before he enters the presidency, he's on his way to Washington. 
Um, he stops at, at Independence Hall and he remarks basically about the connection between these two things. And then as president, he will later repeatedly do that, perhaps most famously in the Gettysburg Address, um, in which he talks about a new birth of freedom having basically been achieved. And that new birth of freedom was, um, was the, realizing the constitution was the document that was trying to put into practice this great promise of people being created equal. Right. And so equality becomes a very important part, uh, objective of the war. I, I wanna at least give a readers a sense of the, the other two uh, remaining mentors that you, you um, uh, identify, and I think they, they make a lot of sense. So the first of those two remaining is John Todd Stewart, who's probably a bit less known to um, the popular um, the folks because he's, he's a little more obscure, but he was a lawyer, a US representative from Illinois, um, served with Lincoln in the Black Hawk War. Um, and then most notably, perhaps he was a favorite cousin to Mary Todd Lincoln, um, his wife. But he was a Democrat who voted against the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. Right. Um, um, but I guess uh, he, he did practice law and encourage Lincoln to pursue the law. So is that Stewart's primary influence over Lincoln is, is, is the, through the, the, the legal angle or how else did he influence him or mentor him? I think it's uh, uh, probably initially through the law, but it's also going to turn out to be in politics too. So as you, as you note, um, John Todd Stewart encouraged Lincoln to be a lawyer and he's Lincoln's first law partner. So he's really giving Lincoln a chance to get educated about the law. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an important step for Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln will always sort of pay, pay homage to, uh, to his being a lawyer, not necessarily to Stewart, but to being a lawyer as something that was important for his um, uh, professional sort of outlook. Um, and, but Stewart didn't just sort of partner with Lincoln. It was the association between the two, the bond in a sense between the two, that turns out to be a very important influence over Lincoln's life. So Stewart, like Lincoln, had an interest in politics. And once Lincoln becomes Stewart's partner, he then in effect becomes the campaign manager for Stewart's first run for Congress. It so happens that first, uh, Stewart's first run for Congress is against a guy named Stephen Douglas. And Lincoln is there watching all of it. And sometimes when Stewart's not available, Lincoln will debate Douglas. Mm. Um, so it's an early way to kind of almost learn about how to do that. He sees how Stewart does it. He learns himself how to do it. And by the time the famous debates come around in the late 1850s, Lincoln and Douglas have debated dozens and maybe even countless times. Um, they knew each other almost backwards and forwards. So it was not, you could understand then why uh, Lincoln might not be intimidated by this person. Right. He had he got to know um, and then occasionally even thought of as a friend and, and it's a political foe, but he's not somebody that intimidates Lincoln. Um, Lincoln understands him. And I think later, as you point out, Stewart becomes a Democrat, but I think Lincoln, uh, even at that late stage, decides that he's not going to back a run for somebody else to go against Stewart. He just still has that kind of personal connection. Right. Stewart takes a seat, we're talking to him in the 1860s, and Lincoln still talks to him. Stewart still talks to him. And in a sense, they, they don't necessarily vote together, uh, but, they, but Stewart helps inform Lincoln about what the Democrats are up to and, and becomes a kind of um, eyes and ears for Lincoln, as, at least as far as Democrats are concerned. And that's useful to Lincoln right. because compromise is useful. He, Lincoln is not that interested 
ultimately in just having his own party go along. He knows that's not gonna be the path to success or the path to fame. Right. Um, gosh, I wish some modern politicians would uh, take some notes from that, that as yes. well. <laughs> uh, the, the final mentor uh, you highlight is Orville Browning, an attorney in Illinois and active in, in Whig and Republican parties. Um, they, they sh I think you mentioned earlier, they shared Kentucky backgrounds and became lifelong friends. What are some of the specific ways that uh, Browning influenced Lincoln? So Browning is, is in the state legislature when Lincoln joins it. Um, and Stewart brings Lincoln into the legislature to teach him about how to legislate. Again, a valuable skill that Lincoln perfects and will use later in his life. Um, Browning's there too, to help Lincoln because Browning's in the Senate, Lincoln's in the House and the state legislature. And so they work together across chambers to get things done. That's a very valuable education about legislation and about how the different branches work together. Mm -hmm. um, and later, Browning will also be one of the founders of the Republican Party in Illinois. He writes the party platform that Lincoln runs on against Douglas. So Browning, in a sense, is there at every step of, along the way. And Lincoln is sometimes using Brown, Browning as a sounding board, sometimes just building on what Browning's done. When Lincoln uh, wins the, the election to be president, Browning is one of the two people he asked to sort of comment on the first inaugural. He makes an important adjustment in the inaugural, which everybody thinks is the most important, which is really to take out the belligerency mm. from the first draft. Seward, Seward kind of had it in there. Browning kind of uh, softens it. And that's a critical thing because it helps Lincoln in his first inaugural not look like the one who's starting this conflict. He's trying to still hold out an olive branch, though at that point, right. um, it's not likely to be accepted. Right. Um, and then Browning will take over Douglas's seat after Douglas dies. And, and so Browning enters the Senate. And while there, he's Lincoln's man. And so he keeps Lincoln informed. He also comes to the White House a lot and keeps Lincoln on an even keel, is the sounding board again. So he's got a constant presence throughout Lincoln's life, uh, even though their relationship wasn't always um, as friendly as it could have been. Right. Um, you have published certainly this book on Lincoln and his mentors, but you have quite a diverse um, body of work, I'd say, um, law, some public policy. Mm -hmm. um, what's your approach to research and writing in, in this book in particular, but I guess just in general as well? Well, it's, it's to first think about something that interests me. Um, yeah, I, I, and so that may define some of the that maybe define the universe of things I've written about. Um, but I think the common, I guess, theme in all the books that I've written is I'm particularly interested in, um, the, in the Constitution and how people that are not judges deal with the Constitution. Mm. Uh, a lot of constitutional law scholars are understandably focused only on the Supreme Court. Right. I acknowledge its importance, but I'm really fascinated on, well, how do presidents handle constitutional issues? Mm. How, does, how does Congress handle them? How do Congress and the president work out their conflicts when courts are not around? Right. So these are the common things I, I wrote about. And ultimately, um, you know, I was interested in Lincoln throughout my life, even through the early years of being a law professor. Uh, you can't, you run into Lincoln if you're interested in constitutional law, but you also run into Lincoln if you're really interested in what happens to the constitution outside the courts. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, my intrigue about Lincoln just kept going. And finally, I thought, well, maybe I should take a shot. You know, it's like climbing Mount Olympus um, and then some. 
Um, and so I, I dared to do this about uh, a book on Lincoln, which first meant I've got to go back and get as, as many uh, of the primary materials as I can and start looking through them with the hope of finding a pattern that would be interesting to write about. Um, and the pattern I found with Lincoln was the, this uh, were the series of mentors. He comes back to these five we just mentioned time and again throughout his career. That was a little bit unusual for him. And I thought that's helped them to stand out. Right. And then I look at, um, I look at what other people have written just to get a sense of whether I've missed something or what else uh, might be out there. Um, and, and finally, I, once I have this idea and I start writing, I try and get feedback from a lot of people um, who have written in the field or elsewhere. So I did travel to Springfield and hung out in the library there for a few days to get feedback. Um, initially, all the historians there thought I was crazy, um, but especially when I picked Jackson. But by the end of my visit, they said, well, it's not, you know, you haven't persuaded us, but it's not crazy. <laughs> I thought that was a success. Um, and so, and then after, when you start writing, you've just got to uh, hope it's accessible and then you show it to different people and uh, work through the copy edits and everything and eventually settle on uh, what becomes a book. Right. Well, when we have lawyers on this podcast, um, I, I love to ask about a common criticism of Lincoln, and that is his use of um, habeas corpus during the war, which many consider an unconstitutional act. Um, do you view that as an unconstitutional situation or, or what, and, and could you elaborate on your view of Lincoln's reasons and whether they were valid and justified? Sure. In fact, I, I do talk about that in the book. And Lincoln had one precedent for suspending habeas corpus, and it was Andrew Jackson. Mm. So in Andrew Jackson, when he um, ends up on his own initiative, suspends habeas corpus in Louisiana, um, or in his, the part of Louisiana where he's hanging out, and that just produces produces mayhem um, of a sort, uh, although Jackson cracks down on it. And so when Lincoln's thinking about doing it later, he looks for guidance and his guidance again comes from Jackson. Right. Um, I don't think either Lincoln nor Jackson really had the authority. Uh, Jackson just did it because Jackson, I think was not a person sometimes who bothered with legal niceties and he just, it right. was convenient. Lincoln, I think, did it for what he'll argue is a more noble reason, is he had to find a way to kind of keep down the rebellion. And those people he thought were fomenting the rebellion. And he thought suspending habeas corpus was a, was a path for doing that. He understood that Congress really had the power and Lincoln tried later to get Congress to ratify it. It does, it takes a couple of years for that to happen. Um, but I think for a president to unilaterally suspend habeas corpus, just much like a general doing it on his own, is not what the Constitution contemplates. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln is really deviating from the Constitution. Um, it's easy for us today, maybe even to allow Lincoln that leeway that would have been brutal at the time that it happened. Um, but at the same time, he's, Lincoln's dealing with a civil war. Right, and, right. And that's just a crisis that no other president's had to deal with. Now, what we don't want is a president becoming a tyrant. And the only way Lincoln could avoid that, he understood, is he had to get Congress on board. Right. Uh, his willingness to do that uh, says a lot about him. Right. And I, I think if you're going to make the legal argument um, in favor of Lincoln there, I would say 
first of all, the Constitution doesn't explicitly say who, who can suspend it. Now, it is an Article One, which is deals with Congress. So um, presumably that's that's within Congress. But on the other hand, Congress was in recess and not in session. Right. So to deal with the issues would have been quite challenging. Um, so to your point, you could do it in pending their ratification later, I guess. But but yeah, um, you touch a lot about uh, you mentioned your interest on um, not necessarily constitutional issues within the court, but in Congress and the presidency, how the how non non lawyers deal with it. Um, and I, I'm also incredibly interested in the interplay between Congress and the presidency. Um, in particular, I guess, to show my bias, I, I, I'm quite distraught in, in modern times how much Congress, which I view as the supreme branch, has given up a lot of its power. Um, what do you think Lincoln would think of the relationship today between Congress and the presidency and how it stands? Well, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to put, imagine that, but, I, but if we think about Lincoln's career, I, I think Lincoln adjusted his view on that big question, depending on where he was in the equation. Mm. Um, so when he's uh, throughout much, much of his life, particularly 1840s, 1850s, and he's idolizing Clay, among others, um, Clay and Lincoln think the place where, where all the action is, is Congress, mm -hmm. much along the lines you just mentioned. Congress should be the driver of national policy. Later, when Lincoln becomes president, he does... Um, he allows for a more of a role for Congress than perhaps maybe some other presidents had, for example, James Polk or even Andrew Jackson. Um, but, but Lincoln's careful about that. Uh, he does take on new unprecedented authorities because it's war. Um, but I think Lincoln is always acknowledging that there's a role for Congress. Um, and I think Lincoln could see, even when he was president, that if he got too far ahead or too far away from Congress, it wasn't necessarily a good thing politically mm -hmm. or constitutionally. So I think Lincoln would be puzzled by what we see today, which is a Congress that's largely um, uh, paralyzed sometimes. Uh, he would understand presidents trying to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think he would be frustrated, as I said, by the fact that Congress couldn't figure out a way to become more meaningful. Right, right. Well, I, I don't want to let you go without asking you about uh, a, an issue that's that's pertinent today because of your um, involvement with with a lot of the modern impeachment controversies. Um, a lot of political and, and social commentators will note the tremendous division in American politics and social life today, mm -hmm. uh, occasionally even remarking we're more divided than ever. I'm probably a bit more bullish on Americans future, but America's future, but I, I understand the 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 challenges we face. Do you believe we're as divided as ever or what's your outlook on, on where we're headed from a political, social, and legal standpoint? Well, I, I suppose I'm, 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 um, I'm structured in such a way that I'm gonna be somewhat bullish, but I, but I think you and I are both um, parts of states, Indiana and North Carolina, um, which are probably reflective of some of these basic divisions you've just mentioned. Um, and, you know, North Carolina, for example, is very much divided. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what color state it is. Um, um, and, uh, and so what we found here in North Carolina is that that makes governance difficult, if not impossible. And then what we've seen in the national scale is very similar. Um, political party has complicated life in America. And I'm not ultimately persuaded for the good. 
Right. Um, I think political parties have become like tribes and warfare, and that hasn't been good for um, maintaining either unity um, or uh, decency. Uh, in, or collaboration even. Really. Or, or collaboration, yes, important word. Yes, collaboration, um, because parties don't want to share um, right. success. But America doesn't succeed, of course, unless everybody succeeds. And uh, that has not been a lesson people have uh, followed much in recent years. Um, I am, uh, and I, I am just a law professor, so I don't know what the, big, the answer to this biggest of all questions is. But I do think um, if people were, uh, saw things more like, let's say a classroom, Mm -hmm. um, they might be more willing to sit and listen to each other and recognize that nobody knows all the answers and maybe we could learn from each other. See it more as a classroom than let's say like a basketball game. Right. right. <laughs> um, and that could be, I don't know if that metaphor would be helpful, but Lincoln to his credit, I think always thought in terms of uh, the, the unity of the country. Um, and even when it was divided, he made his objective bringing it back together. Right. And that I think is a quality and attribute many of us can try and follow. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us today. I, we'd like to end this podcast with um, asking our guests to share their favorite Lincoln story or anecdote. So I don't know if you have any you'd like to share that stand <laughs> out to you. Well, there, there, there are a lot. Um, one of, I think one of my favorites may not even be true. So that's the problem. That's fine. That's fine. Feel free. Uh, um, <laughs> and I, I think there's, there's so many great ones. And I, I do try and talk about a few of them in the book, but here's one I don't talk about in the book, but I do, I tell it to my kids and stuff. And it's, um, at least it's funny, I think. Um, so when Lincoln was supposedly first uh, practicing law um, and he was practicing law with William Herndon, his junior partner, there was somebody who came in to the office that day and asked Lincoln to kind of throw the case. So he represented one client, this person came in representing the other. And this other person says, look, if I offer you like $1,000, will you do it? And Lincoln says, no. And then the person says 3,000, Lincoln says, no. And then the third time he ups the amount to five or $10,000. And Lincoln throws him out of the office. And Herndon, Herndon supposedly says to him, so why, you know, that was really something. Why, so why'd you end up throwing him out of the office? And Lincoln said, well, because he was getting close to my price. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. It is. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but the thing is, anytime he's, when you spend time with Lincoln, you're spending time with somebody who just had a fabulous sense of humor. Right. And in, in the middle of a civil war to maintain your sense of humor, that takes a very special person. Right. And that was Lincoln. Yeah. It says a lot about his character. Yeah. Well, well Michael, again, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, as a reminder for our listeners, his book is Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader, available at your local bookstore, big box store, or online. So I encourage you all to check that out and, and get it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.